This podcast episode is brought to you by OWC, Whisper Room, Spectra 1964, PreSonus Studio One, and Jay-Z Microphones. So get ready to rock. If you're unsure about musician order placement, ask an engineer buddy that does that more than you do. I had to ask somebody. I had to hang around it for a year or two to figure out, okay, this is, quote, the standard of how, you know, this is a great place to start. And that's what I generally try to do. So I have everything set up, clicked out, and a passing signal before anybody ever steps in the room. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. If you feel like the fast pace of computer tech has made your studio Mac obsolete, then think again. OWC is your personal studio tech for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and use Macs perfect for recording and mixing. Why ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio far into the future with the Mac you've already got? Learn how to supercharge your studio and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC.com so that you can focus on making great music. If you're sick of bothering the neighbors when you're trying to record your music or ruining your recordings with outside noises, but you're not ready to spend a fortune on permanent studio construction yet, then consider getting a Whisper Room ISO booth for your studio. Whisper Room offers an instant solution for a comfortable, quiet, ventilated, portable ISO booth with easy line of sight for recording vocals, guitar amps, or even drums. Get 10% off the 4x4 or 4x6 booth when you mention Recording Studio Rockstars at whisperroom.com. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Doug Serrett, a Nashville-based independent audio engineer. He came to Nashville to attend Belmont University and has worked steadily in Nashville recording studios for over 30 years. Doug is also owner of Uno Moss Studio in Brentwood, Tennessee. And a brief list of some of the artists Doug has worked with are artists like U2, Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, Aretha Franklin, One Republic, Vince Gill, Michael McDonald, Amy Grant, Switchfoot, Glenn Campbell, Michael W. Smith, CeCe Winans, Shirley Jones, the mom from the Partridge family, is yeah, that right? exactly. <laughs> That's awesome, dude. She was great. And then Linda Carter, no doubt, Wonder Woman herself. Yeah, and she was great. That's awesome. And the Oak Ridge Boys and tons, tons of others. So um, I met Doug recently at a Nashville Engineers Lunch event. And thank you again to none other than Mr. Mark Rubel at Blackbird Academy for uh, helping make that introduction. And when I checked out Doug's website and work, I was really blown away. So here we are on Recording Studio Rockstars. Please welcome Doug Sarah to Recording Studio Rockstars. Doug, are you ready to rock? Dude? You bet. Dude, welcome to the studio, man. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, you are just on the other side of Nashville, um, so what's like, you know, 20 minutes? Well, yeah, I guess it, it, Nashville traffic's getting a little trickier these days. Well, it was thinned out by the time I was headed this way, so I, it was just over 20 minutes to get here. We're good. Yeah, 10 a.m. is a is a reasonable. Oh, I'm just I've just outed the time of day, but 10 a.m. is a, a sort of a reasonable rock and roll, not totally rock and roll, but it's reasonable enough for studio time. Yeah, exactly. I think. Um, 
give us an introduction to who you are in your own words. You know, how did you get started in, you know, a brief introduction anyway, in music and recording and end up, you know, here in Nashville 30 years later with the studio? I I moved here to go to Belmont. Um, my dad gave me some of the greatest advice I ever got, I think. And it was, pick a job you enjoy doing because you're going to be doing it a long time. And it, it was, I mean, obviously people change careers. But um, I just thought it was great advice. And I've always loved music. I've loved the emotional aspect that it has on me. And I wanted to be able to be involved in something that would have that same kind of impact on others. Um, you, I guess you really came here for school same time I did because 30 years ago is when I started at uh, MTSU. So nice. we, were, okay. we were in competing colleges or something. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> you know, my first question was going to be like, oh, I didn't know Belmont had a recording program 30 years ago. And then I thought about it. I was like, wait a minute, of course I knew that because I was at MTSU and the other one. Yeah. What was the recording program like back then? And what was, uh, I know that university has changed massively. It has really expanded tremendously uh, over the decades since I was there. Uh, when I started, my first session at the school studio was on 16 track. It was the only one I ever did on 16 because you're that's, sitting next to my MCI. Yeah, um, but it's a 24. Track. Yeah, I've, well, but I've I have 16 on track heads on. Oh, do you really? Yeah. I never put the 24 track heads on. Wow. I just like the 16 track heads too much. Yeah, yeah, they sound great. They do. More tape. It's good. More oxide. Uh, anyway, my first and only session was 16-track uh, at Belmont, and from there on, it was 24-track. And then we moved on to, uh, you know, Radar 32-track, ADATs, DA88s, Sony 48s, yep. and now Pro Tools. We had to go through all of it. Oh, man, what a transition. You know, that that decade of us getting out of school and our first decade in working professional was such a huge transition for the recording business because— I mean, maybe everybody feels that way about their decade, but we went from the time of pro studios was the option. Although there were, you know, there were four track cassette right. studios. Porta studios. Porta yeah. studios. And I guess those have been around for since the 70s, maybe, or the yeah. 80s. Yeah, 70s. 70s cassette versions? I think so, yeah. Hmm. Because they would take the... Instead of it being two tracks in each direction on a cassette, they would bet take four tracks in one direction. So you had a, quote, four-track system. Oh, so that was the first time you worked with One Direction. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. Um, so we went from, like, the 90s were the time that transitioned from the the big professional studios as, you know, the only real option to, with, with multi-track tape machines and you know, a tape machine at that time, we're talking like eighty thousand to one hundred and fifty thousand dollar investment yeah, just for the tape machine. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, and not to mention a console and everything else that went into it. And then along came the ADATs. I, I remember that as sort of the first alternative, right? Right. And that was huge. That was really groundbreaking because all of a sudden it meant that, um, and I guess like us, an A track ADAT would was what like. Um, Few thousand bucks or yeah, something at the point. Three grand ish, somewhere around there. And that, but that just meant that, you know, there was an alternative to a big expensive studio. Now all of a sudden you could have um, independent studios, home studios, 
Yeah. So you could rent. I, we used to rent ADATs and then we'd put them in our house and oh. do a session. And I had a rental company, uh, Gear for Days, back in the day. And we oh, rented. Oh, Gear for Days was your company? Yeah. yeah oh, I, I used didn't to own know that. that. Yeah, wow, yeah. what a trip, man. Well, add that to the list. I there, rented yeah. from you all the time. In fact, you guys, I even rented through you for a minute. I yeah. think, yeah. It was uh, the way that rental company thrived in that situation was people would keep slapping different tapes into their ADATs for overdubs. And so when they got to mix time, they're going, oh, I've got four machines, but I've got eight tapes worth of information. I've got to rent some machines here. Nice. To, to, to get this mix to happen. So, uh, yeah, we rented ADATs a lot. That's pretty wild, man. I, I really had no idea that Gear for Days was, and, you know, the rental stuff was part of your, yeah. your path. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What was it like to decide, oh, I think I, it would make sense for me to start a rental company? Because that's something that still can exist for people today, no matter where they are. Yeah. It, most of, for me, I was buying gear because I like gear. Because uh, another great piece of advice I got was, if you've got the right tools, the job is easy. And that's true with experience as well. But if you put the right microphone on the right instrument, all you got to kind of do is bring up the fader and go, hey, that sounds great. Let, let's hit record. Yeah, stick a right musician in there, too, if you can. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you get the right, right people, the right gear, and the right instrument. Man, your job becomes infinitely easier, and it's much more about music instead of trying to solve a problem. So uh, first microphone I ever bought was the C12, and I bought it from uh, Bill Bradley. Oh, yeah, Bill's great. Yeah, yeah he's, he's worked on a bunch of my mics. Um, my U67, I was telling you. Is yeah. Got his capsule in it. Well, I, I got this. Uh, I bought the C12 for $2,200 back in the day. And what was great about it was it sounded good on just about anything. And so whenever I was overdubbing on stuff, I would bring the mic with me and uh, set it up. And people would go, wow, this sounds great. And, and it did because the mic sounded great. So I uh, went from there, uh, bought a, a 47 uh, at a studio that had gone bankrupt, a bullet studio. And it worked in my favor because they said that the, uh, the microphone passed signal, but it was really thin sounding and they weren't sure what the problem was. So I ended up picking up the 47 for a thousand bucks. You were like thin sounding. I'm pretty sure I know that's like one solder connection. And it's exactly what it was. Yeah. It was one solder joint. It was, it was a cold probably solder. the plus or minus leg somewhere, like the minus. You know, uh, at the, the capsule, at the running down. Oh, nice. To get down. So it was a really easy fix. And I think Bill Bradley now, did, you did try? That okay, fix. I was going to say that's a. I'm not, no, no, I don't, no. I'm not no. ready to go fix the capsule no. myself. Uh -uh. But. But it, it's a, it's, I still have it. It's a great sounding mic. It's been on everything from uh, the first three Clint Black records back in the 80s to uh, Tim McGraw's uh, first two records that, uh, you know, established his career. Uh, it was rented for uh, George Jones on the last record he made over oh, at cool. RCA. Nice. And so it's got quite a legacy in itself. And it's a, still a great sounding mic. I use it practically every time I record. So. so you found yourself at a certain point with um, a, a plethora, I get to use that word, yeah. a plethora of recording gear, and you thought, I should start a rental company? Well, I, my engineer friends would would say, hey, are, are you, man, I need a C12. Are you using your C12? And I went, no, I'm mixing that week. So yeah, just, yeah, take off and use it. And then, you know, at, at that point, 
the music industry was uh, a healthier, I guess would be the word. I don't know, but there was a line item in all the budgets for rentals and yeah. cartage and all those things that we don't necessarily have anymore. So I started renting it. And I would just send an invoice to whoever they were using the project on and started making money, used that money to buy more gear, bought a lot of Massenburg stuff because I feel like he makes great equipment as yeah, well. And yeah. then it snowballed from there to APIs, to tape machines. I had a Neve BCM-10 for a while. Ooh, just oh, Love the BCM-10. Oh, so, yeah, I got to have access to a lot of equipment just because of that side hustle of renting gear, if you will. Um, will you take a moment and explain to the Rockstars what a BCM-10 is? It's a Neve. Uh, it, it was like a Neve console. It was 10 inputs, and it was full of 1073s. And it, it was like the entire console back in the 60s because you didn't have more than 10 tracks of stuff. Yeah, so you had your mic pre, your EQ, your fader for mixing. Right. Um, it, it did have some sends on it too, right? It for, did, for yeah. For Q-mix and right, reverb it, sends and whatever. Yeah, it was, the, it was the console, but it was only 10 channels. And, uh, of course, it sounded great because yeah. it was full of 1073s. Yeah. <laughs> well, very cool. You want the critical details from your microphone to get through to your recording, and the Spectra 1964-101 amplifier provides just that. With unequaled headroom, low noise, and a linear output, irrespective of transient audio peaks. Used by Tom Dowd, Muscle Shoals, Stack Studios, and The Record Plant on records by ZZ Top, Aerosmith, Bruce Springsteen, and John Lennon, Spectra 1964 brings that same incredible sound to your studio with the new STX-600 mic pre with built-in comp limiter. Start making classic records again at spectra1964.com. If you want a digital audio workstation that will give life to your music from sketching a new idea to composing, editing, mixing, and mastering a finished record, then you want Studio One from Presonus. Studio One is easy to use with intuitive drag-and-drop simplicity, making it great for beginners, yet flexible and powerful for experienced producers. Whether creating beats, recording a band, or composing a blockbuster film soundtrack, you will find everything you need to create your masterpiece. Download your free version of Studio One Prime and get started now at PreSonus, wherever sound takes you. Give us, uh, we don't have to stay on the rental thing for too long, but but share with us something that was a challenge for you in starting a company idea like that, you know, you know really, really going bold with something like that. Uh, I think the challenge was time management more than anything, because I would have to, uh, I was still doing sessions. I was right. engineering because, right. and and I, I reached a crossroads at some point, I'll chase a rabbit here, that I'm going, do I want to be a gear rental guy or do I want to be an engineer? And my heart was still, and still is very much, I want to make music and I want to affect people with the quality and caliber of music I'm able to be involved in. Uh, but the gear rental thing... Uh, turned into a really substantial side hustle, if you will. So I ended up hiring employees. Once I reached a point of, uh, I would leave the house at eight in the morning and drop off gear and then go to my session at 10 o'clock. And then at the end of the day, if they were done with it, I would make the loop before I went home to pick up the gear. That was such a wonderful thing about working with you guys in, in a gear rental company is that idea of, you know, especially in a town where um, it's all local, 
is you guys literally would include it in the rental would be like a van coming by and dropping it off and yeah. picking it up. It was such a great thing. Yeah. And then there was also this great concept of the um the four day week. Right. And then what was the I don't know, there was another number for a month or something like that. Yeah, it right? was maybe a twelve day month. I don't remember, yeah. but it was So what does that mean? It it would mean if you kept a piece of gear for a month, you would pay for twelve days. Yeah. Or if you kept a piece of gear for a week for seven days, then you would pay for four. Just kind of a quantity uh, quantity discount. Yeah, kind of. Thing. And it was great. It really resonated because you were like, "No way, that's so awesome." Um, have you seen anybody do clever quantity discounts in studio world? You know, where it's like you have a studio and you're offering that to people. Uh, back in that day, yeah, there would be the occasional, but it would have to be a couple of weeks yeah. at least to, yeah. to make it worth their while. And it, it becomes at some level a convenience for the product that's being provided because you don't have to think about it for a week or two. It's like, okay, right. I took it, I build it, and it, it's not a it's not a daily go drop it off, go pick it up, go drop it off, go pick it up right. kind of thing. Totally, totally. Yeah. Well, I know that studios too um, – a lot of studios might sort of throw in the weekends and stuff like that too, because right. so a, so a session didn't have to tear down, even if they weren't going to work on the weekends. Um, very cool. So you you did that. You were making records. Uh, what what about at the uh, early stage for you of sort of transitioning from school to finding yourself on pro sessions? Uh, I interned at a couple of different studios. Um, uh, Belmont back in that day, they had a uh, a public relations group because, uh, you know, looking back, I realized they're just trying to drum up business, trying to get students to come to their school. And and this group would be a four-piece rhythm section and eight singers and an engineer. And I had no idea what a gift had been given to me. Uh, I was available for work-study at the school, and my work-study job was to help with this public relations group that we, we went to high schools in the Tennessee area to try and get kids to, hey, I could go to Belmont to college. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, come to find out, the, the gift for me was that the band was Dan Huff and David Huff and Gary Lund ba as playing bass and then a, a keyboard player named Kurt Howell who's now a, an equipment rep for, for recording gear. Uh and eight singers. Jeff Balding was the engineer for the live group, and I was assisting Jeff. Wow. So I ended up being around this caliber of talent that I just, I had no idea that wasn't normal. But it wasn't normal, and I'm really grateful that I was able to to start at, at a what I feel like was a step up. That is a thing that I've noticed about Belmont University in Nashville is that they've they've always done a really remarkable job of staying connected to high level of talent in the industry. You know, like, I mean, they're the ones who, um, you know, <clears throat> this podcast isn't an ad for Belmont <laughs> University, but I've just seen that it's, it's amazing that they went and said, well, <clears throat> if the music industry is changing and the classic studios are you know struggling to figure out how they're going to survive? Well, we'll just go purchase the studio and we'll now own it and it will belong to us and it'll stay there. You know. Yeah. So I think they have um, Ocean Way and and the um, <clears throat> Quonset Hut and right. more than that. Are there more uh, more studios? Yeah, the, I, I think uh, Mike Kerb was instrumental in Quonset Hut and 
RCA Studio B? B, maybe, yeah. The small yeah. one. Yeah, the small because one. Because Dave Cobb's in the big one. Right. Who ended up with the BCM-10 we talked about earlier. Oh, nice. Just, yeah. good, good move, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Nice nice piece of gear. Dave, I'm, we'll I'm, have to have you on the show to talk about and it. And he's too. making good music with it, which there's some reward in that, too. Yeah. But, uh, and then they've got uh, studios on campus as well for students to, besides Ocean Way and, and those others that are that are kind of off campus. Well, that's cool. Well, so um, moving forward, now you have a studio of your own. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what's what's your studio like? What's what? How do you, when you go to work every day, <clears throat> what are you sitting in front of and, and next to and surrounded by? Um, when I started, it was uh, a Neve 8232 with Flying Fader Automation. And at some point in the process of all these tracks that kept getting added, 32 faders was not enough. So I had to go to a, a, a Euphonic CS2000. And then October of 2018, I unplugged the CS2000 because I had been mixing in the box for three years anyway. So mm-hmm. I was really comfortable mixing. And my transition at that point was how do I do headphones and all the interfacing of that without a console? Yeah. And was able to set up templates and make all that happen. I've got two headphone systems. I got the Behringer 16 track, and then I've got a two-channel box, which is what the old school studios is the only thing you had. And the old school uh, box I generally use for vocals and for any... uh, orchestral kind of like strings or brass or woodwinds kind of overdubs. Uh, just because it's easier, I put, uh, uh, and they're used to it. And by, by easier, I mean that that's what they're used to. On the left knob is everything except the person being recorded, and it's on the right knob. So if they need— Right, it's just a more me yeah. kind of setup, right? Yeah, if, if they need more piano on the left knob, as opposed to drums or bass, then they ask me and I accommodate that. They don't have a 16-channel box to set their mix for that's, every song. That's the remarkable thing about headphone mixes is uh, I would say 99.9% of the time what people really need in their headphones and what they really want is just more of themselves. Right, or <laughs> control of more or less of themselves depending yeah, right. on how they, loud yeah, they're playing. Exactly. They just want their instrument to be hitting their ear in a way that makes some sense to them. Right. Um but as you begin begin to be more advanced with understanding headphones and what you need, then yes, definitely like being able to control some of the other sounds in there and you begin to become attuned to things that are distracting for you or that like, you know, you need the kick and the snare exaggerated in order to really like right. find the pocket or whatever it is. Yeah, and know. for rhythm dates especially, man, those guys are... Uh, it's such a difference maker for the bass player to be able to have an exaggerated kick and hi-hat because they can really lock down to what the drummer's doing. And and maybe they don't need an extreme amount of keyboard because that's not going to affect necessarily what they play. Right, exactly. Uh, or vocal. You know, the vocalist right. is going to certainly want a lot of their voice. Um, they, they tend to always want that. Yeah. And it's it's funny when you're tracking... There are times where you need everybody to have a powerful amount of vocal in there because it informs the performance for the band. And then there are times where that vocal does nothing but screw up the timing of everybody's playing. And pitch center. And pitch center, right. Because yeah. Yeah, uh, on, on a fretted instrument, or really on any instrument, you can pretty 
you got to hit the pitch center to make it be in tune. And if a, a vocalist, they can slip slide all over the place, and that's artistic, but it's not necessarily what's best to make the rhythm track be as solid as it could be. Yeah, because there's more, um, you know, certain performances and, and songs just have more interpretive pocket and timing around the vocal phrasing. Exactly. You know, yeah. The vocal's a little ahead of the drums or whatever, and that can really throw things off. But it feels right for that moment in the lyric for for them for the 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 rush of that uh, right. is a good thing. Yeah, but it's, a good it's not thing. a good thing when you're trying to lay a track down. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a good thing for the the composite of the music as a exactly. whole. Exactly. But it's not a good thing when you when you do have to land only with that kick or right on the one or whatever right. it is. Right. Um, what's your instrument? Do you play as well? Well, when I moved here, I thought I played drums and learned really quickly that that engineering thing looks mighty interesting because I was never going to be as good as the first two drummers I heard in the studio. Yeah. I mean, I was stunned at their uh, versatility and skill set, sound of the kit, everything about it. It was like, oh, man. I could stop eating and just practice, and I don't know that I'd ever be as good as they were. Well, let me ask you a quick question. Um, if you have somebody come along and they tell you that they really love playing, and then you, maybe the conversation steers towards that, which I've heard many times in Nashville. It's like, well, I play guitar, but I don't call myself a guitar player in Nashville or something like that. Um, if you get the sense that somebody doesn't want, is hesitant to give up on their instrument and focus on the engineering side of things, do you do you have like a kind of a go-to advice for them if they really do want to excel at their instrument? Do you ever get that question? I, I not off the top of my head. I don't remember it happening. But my advice would be to be really great at what you want to be really great at. And if it's guitar, go for it, man. Yeah, uh, yeah this town is loaded with guitar players. But you know what? Great guitar players are great guitar players. Right. And if you're great at it, you're going to get the work. Yeah. And I decided that, you know, engineering was that for me because I, I didn't feel like I could ever reach the caliber of talent that, that I saw of the first two drummers I ever, you know, was able to be around. Are you sick of microphones that make your music sound harsh and brittle? The new Amethyst mic by Jay-Z Microphones brings you a rich, warm tone with perfect detail using the Golden Capsule technology. Resulting from 30 years of microphone design, the Amethyst is hand-built using carefully selected parts with Class A discrete circuitry, extremely low self-noise, and an advanced shock mount to make sure your recording sound awesome. This is my voice on the Amethyst right now. Use the limited-time coupon ROCKSTARS to get 50% off the Amethyst Mike at jzmike.com. So now you have a studio that is very in the box centric. You've, you've yeah. done the console thing, you've done the tape machine thing. Yeah. Um, do you find that you like to keep a lot of that kind of old school studio technology around to uh, interface with the computer too? Or just do consoles and tape machines just sort of get sold off? Um, I still like trying to get it into Pro Tools as well as I can possibly get it in there without making a decision that's going to handcuff me later. But once it's in the box, I stay in the box. It's really rare. If I've got to get out of the box to hit a piece of hardware, then so be it. And if that's what it takes to make it what it ought to be, I do. But it's the last resort because there's right, so much. Yeah, there's so much you can do now with with plugins and manipulation of waveforms and just all of the things 
that the box allows you to do. I've got I've got great outboard gear, but I try to use it to get it to get what I'm recording into Pro Tools the best way possible. Yeah. So all that to say, the hardware I've still got uh, four 1073s and two 1081s and a bunch of API pre's and Massenburg compressors mm-hmm. and EQs. Did and I see pre-in. some DBX 160s in the DBX rack there 160, too. Got a pair of those, man. On kick and snare, there's nothing better in my mind. So when and how would you use those on the kick and the snare? Would you use it as part of the tracking? Oh yeah, move. I would. Where, okay, so let's go right there. Where, where where does the kick and where does the DBX one hundred and sixty go? How do you where, how do you connect? I don't I don't know anything about the studio. What do you do with these things? Uh, I would uh, my general for kick and snare. I would say Massenburg preamp to a uh, API five hundred and sixty graphic EQ, and then to the DBX one hundred and sixty, and kind of knock the tops off. I. I I don't want to take the dynamics out of what the drummer's trying to accomplish, but I'll turn it down as low as one and a half to one, two to one. So that's the needle is the gain reduction of the needle is moving. Right. You know. Okay. Right. So, so that I'm not, I don't want, I don't want to clamp it down, but I do want to be able to control it. And frankly, I kind of like, I, f- I feel like the DBX 160 adds just a bit of snap, a bit of attack to the kick and the snare to make it punch through the way it should. Yeah, well, one thing about thinking about it, like knocking the tops off. So when you say the tops, we're talking about the transient, you know, exactly, like the spike the on, the, yeah. on the Pro Tools screen of where that hit happens. And by by <clears throat> knocking a little bit of that top off, it actually lets you have a little bit more breathing room, sort of fatten the gain on your, right. on your kick or snare and inside right. Pro Tools. That was the thing that tape did, yeah. you know, on its own. It just actually... Just didn't really like hit a soft ceiling. Well, and and getting back to that transition in in the eighties, uh, another Nashville engineer. His first place I remember hearing the story was Chuck Ainley, and he was he had cut to digital, and we were so used to tape compression and what it did. And he got to the mix, and things weren't doing. And he realized I'm not getting any tape compression, so he. Put compressors, not all over the place, but on on the things that that tape compression really made a difference on, and that's how you had to kind of compensate for not having tape compression yeah. with with the digital uh, recording format. Yeah, it's an interesting, tricky balance. So, do you feel like that some a lot of the techniques for how you capture an instrument in the recording process have changed from um, the the tape days to the digital days to have we taken some things for granted? Like, would would you have tracked a kick and a snare through a compressor to tape back in the beginning? I didn't. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, I would say so. Uh, I, I certainly didn't back in the day because I, I could always easily get to it later if I had to. Right. So, yeah, it, yeah. it matters the the for, the format it's captured on. Yeah. And and I've certainly heard a lot of people talk about that, that the idea of um, with digital, now you have to try a little harder to make sure that things, I don't want to say, I'm going to say less perfect, you know, like you don't want everything necessarily pristine all the time. Sometimes you do want recordings to be very pristine and other times you want them to have a little funk on them or a little, you know, little dirt, little grit, little dirt, little, yeah. grit, little harmonic distortion. Right. And that's what makes it sound right to us. Yeah. 
And I guess that's a nice thing about digital is you you have much more wiggle room where you can go either direction and it'll it's going to work in both directions. I, I think so many of the plugins now that I'm interested in are the ones that kind of jack things around. Okay, this is this is clean and beautiful, and I just need it to be gritty. And and I'm not saying to make it not quality, but I am saying to make it's not as interesting to me clean and pristine for a particular genre as it would be if it's just got some, you know, some hair on it, like like on a B3. Yeah. That's got to have some growl because it's the nature of the instrument. To yeah, me. Otherwise, it just sounds we're, uh, we're like we're at polite church service, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, guitars are great examples, too. I mean, yeah. guitars, it would be obvious to us. It wouldn't make sense. Rock and roll wouldn't make sense without distortion. Yeah, you know? exactly. It wouldn't necessarily be the same kind of rock and roll. Although Elvis did, they didn't have a lot of dist- well, they they had grit, but yeah, it was clean. But stuff. distortion hadn't been figured out yet. Yeah, hadn't been figured out yet. Um, all right, cool. So you mentioned something a moment ago about headphones. We were talking about that. I thought it'd yeah. circle back for a sure. second. Talk to us a little bit about some of the important um, perspectives that each musician is going to want in their headphone mix that really makes a tracking session go great. For example, you had that one um, project that we included in the YouTube playlist of your work with Tim Akers and doing, and, and it looked like a full band doing Uptown Funk in the studio. Yeah. yeah. Amazing sounding stuff. Amazing performance too. Um, but that's a great example of a variety of musicians. You got drums, you got bass, you got a guitar player, you got horn players, you've got vocalists, BV and lead. Um, what are the things that really, you know, when you were figuring out your headphone situation with Pro Tools, what are the elements that each musician is going to want to have in their headphones, you know, with 30 years of experience on your part? Well, in, in a like. situation like uh, uh, in a situation like that, uh, drums are generally down to maybe four tracks. You'll have the kick and snare separate and then everything else on two and then I can change the balance. In terms of a, a headphone mixer? Of mean? a 16-channel box, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I, And then that leaves you room to give everybody else kind of their own fader, and they can have as much or a little of themselves or anything else that they need. Now, the— um, Well, I guess my question is, um, those are the things you send to them, but in your experience, you've gone and listened to their headphones and seen what people actually right. do with their mixes. Right. And I'm curious, you know, what your insights are about that, too. Where, what do drummers end up putting in their headphones? What do bass players end up putting in their headphones? Drummers generally, I feel like, uh, love the click because— even if no one else listens to it. And there are some musicians that turn the click off and they just follow the band so that they don't feel like they're married to that eighth note busting them in the head the whole time, which isn't very musical uh, if you've ever put on headphones that have a click going. Yeah, especially the first time you try and play to a click. Yeah, because it's relentless and it doesn't move and you can say whatever you want, but it's, it's the king as far as tempo goes. So the drummer generally has a lot of uh, click and kick and snare. Um, not so much uh, toms and cymbals. Very, very, really, the cymbal bleed into the other mics is enough for them. They don't require a lot of overheads. But I need them, you know, for, for mix control later. Uh, singers want to hear themselves, and, and some want reverb and some don't. And you work with the same people enough, you, you just know, okay, 
this singer wants a bathtub. They want to be swimming in reverb. And and this other one, if I put that much reverb on them, they start singing sharp. And and some are going, I don't want any reverb at all of any kind. And and some with all those variables, they want a ton of themselves or very little to none of themselves because they're, again, it, it's such a personal preference. And that's what's great about having a multi-channel box is that they can make those choices and and everyone else can too. It, uh, I'll just use the drummer. The drummer's not going to want a vocal because the vocal can slip slide a downbeat and be very musical about it, but that's not going to help him. That's what the click is so paramount for to stay at a steady tempo and let the singer do their thing, but not affect him necessarily. Yeah, and usually we're all counting on that drummer to lay down a like a, a you know the trust factor exactly. for, the, for the song. And if anything else is not with the drums, let's fix the anything else. Right. You know, let's count on the drums to be the thing that is our reference, our backbone to the whole song. Right. Exactly. It's, it's not always the case if you know if you're tracking a you know sort of a real band performance, then sometimes there's that, there's the slushiness of the whole band that plays together, but those are probably non, non-click yeah. moments anyway, you right. know, non-click performances. And, and, you know, not everyone cuts to a click and that's okay too, but you've got to realize what you've done to yourself down the road. Uh, and again, it's okay. You just have to realize that if you're not to a click, then that's or to a grid really now with Pro Tools, that that's gonna that's gonna affect how you do things further down the road. Totally fine. Whatever makes the music the best, I'm I'm for that. Okay, so two questions for you. Um, I always do this two questions thing, and then I ask the first one, and it's so complex that we <laughs> we come out like luck if we circle back to the second. But uh, the two questions. So the first one is, um, uh, what are some thoughts that go through your head? when you're recording the band, the artist, um, and you're about to suggest that this song might do better with a click or without a click. Um, and then, uh, oh, and then the other question is, if you do it without a click, what are some of the things that, that the rock stars listening now should be aware of? These are, these are some of the spots you're going to have to watch out for as far as like c- continuing the song and finishing it with overdubs if you didn't record with a click. Uh, if the song's a steady tempo, I'm going to say go to a click. Uh, if you want it to breathe, then give people permission to let it breathe. And and professional players here are skilled enough that they can they can lay back and they can you know move ahead, maybe going into a chorus kind of thing, and not and leave the click, but not really leave the tempo. You know, just to, for that energy. So all that to say, if if the entire song is a steady tempo, I would always say go with a click. Do you really want the neighbors banging on the ceiling when you're trying to rehearse or record your music? Do outside noises and computer fans get into your studio mic and ruin your recordings? You could book a pro studio to record every time, but that would add up quickly. And doing permanent construction to soundproof your studio 
could easily cost up to $100,000. And you can't take that with you when you eventually move the studio. Don't you wish there was an easy solution right now? Whisper Room ISO Booths offers a simple way to install a comfortable, quiet, ventilated ISO booth in your studio with easy line of sight for recording vocals or even drums in a variety of sizes. For 30 years, Whisper Room has been solving studio isolation needs with ISO booths that are shippable, portable, and can be assembled in an afternoon. Now you can get pro vocal recordings right in your home studio. Practice whenever you want and start using real guitar amps again. Get 10% off the 4x4 or 4x6 booth when you mention Recording Studio Rockstars at whisperroom.com. If you're using a Mac in your recording studio and you're tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly, then Otherworld Computing is the solution for you. OWC can help keep your existing Mac and studio current and relevant so that you can make great music. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM, install an SSD, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac, you can get the most mileage out of your studio with OWC. Offering a vast library of DIY installed videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49, there's no need to get frustrated when you can achieve the speed to create and the capacity to dream at OWC.com. What are some cues to you? And you may be working with such good musicians that this doesn't come up much. But I know, um, you know, in, in amateur land and in, in a lot of home studio lands, this will come up um, starting, oops, we got the wrong tempo on the click. What are some things that might cue you uh, or clue you in to know that the tempo was wrong and that we need to change the tempo of the click to keep working forward? Um, if, if, the, if there haven't been demos done beforehand, that, that really, uh, so much of, what I like to do before we get everybody piled in the studio is to have a roadmap before we ever walk in the room. And so I, I would want to know the key of the song, uh, what the dominant instrument's going to be, and the tempo. And if the tempo, if the demo of it feels good, you know, if the tempo's 78, then the tempo's 78, and it felt good on the demo, the, the, the fear is that when you get in the studio, uh, adrenaline gets going and everybody wants to just play it faster because they're excited and it's new and it's a rush. So they're going, oh, the click's holding me back. And you're going, yeah, but the, you know, it felt great beforehand. Don't raise this thing five beats a minute which just is, because you're excited. Which is a reminder of the power of keeping that demo close, close at hand during a tracking session. Yeah. That was a tough one to learn too. Is like, because, um, you know, there was a long time where, to listen to that demo again, you had to like, you know, switch a button and flip over and play it back. Now, of course, um, the the lesson I try to always remember is import that demo into the Pro Absolutely. Tools session. Yeah, have it on a track. Sessions. Hold on, guys. Let me play that back for you one more time. Also, right. turn the level down because it's probably going to blow up their headphones when you press play. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I'm with you. I always, uh, I've set up my session with the uh, demo in it and use that as the BPM reference. And, and, by and large, it, it's going to win most of the time. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep chase, checking it, right? Yeah, I'll I'll uh, chase a quick rabbit before we get to your second question. Uh, if you don't cut to a click, you can go back in Pro Tools and lay a grid 
uh, after the fact. Right. Which is uh, crucial if you're doing any kind of like big orchestral thing. If you've got 20 to 40 people on the floor and they can't find the downbeat because you didn't cut to a click and you're having to pay all those people X number of dollars an hour, that's a really expensive lesson to learn. So if you can grid up before you get there and then generate a click for them to follow and say, it's not in tempo, but here's a click to give you a reference so that you've got an eighth note to know where where the downbeat's going to fall. Right. It's going to save everybody time, which inevitably saves you money. Can you, um, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but can you give us, uh, just describe how you would do that in Pro Tools from, from memory? Uh, Generally with the uh, tab to transient and either with the on the kick drum or on the bass, depending on uh, tempo-wise what's going on. And you can go in after the fact and you're basically every every bar, you're gonna drop a marker. Right. And and you'll look at you'll look at the tempo. And since I said 78 earlier, let's just go with that. So the song starts at 78 and then they they maybe speed up into the course. So you're going to see 79, 80, 81 uh, different bars with different BPMs. But it still gives you uh, an eighth note reference enough that you're able to be able to follow this ebb and flow of the track. So are we using Beat Detective I or don't. something like that. So it's a manual thing, kind of. Kind yeah. Of like, okay. Yeah. So, so and you, it, it's really quick with tab to transient, man. It's really fast. Right. All right. So so you tab to the the kick of you know the first bar of the verse. Right. And then what do you do? You you do drop a um, tempo to, marker right there. You drop like a marker there. Uh, do an apple eye, and drop a marker there. And then the next you you go for a bar, and the next kick drum on the downbeat of that bar. You drop a marker there and and apple eye it, and it will give you your BPM for that bar. Ah, and then gotcha. you just All do right. a bar at a time. And the apple eye would be, you you do a selection from the previous marker to the new marker. Right. And then do apple eye, and it's going to extrapolate the uh, the tempo. The tempo for that bar. For that bar. And then you do it for the next bar. And, then it, and it's really, I mean, once you get the keystrokes down, it's really fast. You oh. can do it in five or 10 minutes. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I'm not doing that at all. So I like that. Oh, Because I was going to say one of the, one of the challenges is um, you need to know when to start the song. If you mm-hmm. don't have a click, you need some sort of, people don't always leave your account off when there's right. a click. You know, they should. Um, and then also when there's pauses and breaks in there, there's any kind of a hole, and then the band starts all together. You need that count off right there. Yeah, any kind of click reference to know, and, and it doesn't have to be a, a tempo as much as I just need you know three clicks to come in on the fourth click, and I always know on the fourth click that's when the downbeat's going to occur, and yeah, I'll hit it every time. So this is a nice lesson I learned uh, about drummer count offs, um, and it's always funny to me how sometimes. Um, some drummers who aren't used to playing with a click might actually struggle with actually counting off a song. Um, you know, I, I have a buddy who's a great drummer. He's one of my favorite drummers and he can't cut off a song to save his life. You know? <laughs> That's all right. Um, but like, you know, uh, counting off. So if you, if the drummer is going to count off the song, I've, I've learned that a great one is, you know, stick, stick, say one, two, one, two, three. Don't do a four. Exactly. Leave a gap. And then come in together. And what that does is that just leaves a nice, make sure that there's no room echo continuing right up to the downbeat with the drums. You know, you've got just like open air for that last beat. So that was a nice trick. Yeah. 
Um, and then another trick that I'll do is if if the song starts, maybe a guitar started the song. Maybe I'm playing and I started it, and it's just like you know, dun, 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 you know, whatever it is. You can go in and I'll just grab the first bar or the whatever feels like the first steady bar of the guitar, and I'll copy that and paste it on a count off track so yeah. that it leads the other guitar and turn it way down and filter it, make it sound different. So it's really obvious that like you're hearing the good instrument play and then there's the downbeat. And um, I've even gone back and, and put a verbal count yeah. in front of that. S- same kind of thing, just, just so that, you know, there wasn't a count off. So we created one after the yeah, fact. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, those are whatever so, works. Those are easy. When you learn them, they're easy, quick things to do that, uh, before you knew how to do that, uh, you could just you could see a, a band losing an hour in the studio <laughs> trying to figure yeah, out how to right. just start a song with an overdub and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, cool. So let's see the other thing. So the, uh, I think we kind of covered all the click questions, didn't okay. we? There. All right, all right. Dig it. What should we talk about next? Well, you mentioned the the Tim Akers and smoking section video. Yeah. Uh, the true confessions time here is that was. Someone asked, "Hey, where'd y'all record that?" And and the joke was Dropbox Studios. Nice, <laughs> because every it just got passed around. It just got really. Emailed. It's not a band no. performing. No. Wow. And what about the video? Did the, each of them shoot their own video? No. That that was all done for the most part together. Yeah. Uh, the the brass and the vocal, the rhythm was together, and the brass were together, and the vocals were together. Well, it's some great stuff, and the the brass. Um, were together. They were recorded together. I wonder if they were recorded in the same way that you see in the video, where no. it's like they're sitting next to each other and stuff. Well, yeah. The, I mean, they were all at the same time. All the brass were together. Let's talk about recording brass. Okay. What's some stuff people need to know. Like, you know, they're really. If you're loud. an engineer, <laughs> you're an engineer, <laughs> oh, they're and loud. they're like, we're we just bringing in a three piece brass section. They come into the studio. I remember it scared the shit out of me. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what to do with three brass players. Like, how do you record these guys? Do you isolate them in different rooms? Do you put them all on one mic? Do you give them different mics? What are some thoughts about ways to record brass, um, maybe in your experience in a big old studio or even in like a home studio environment? Uh, I've done both. And if you have the square footage, do uh, I would do close mics and room mics just so that you have the flexibility later. That is one of the beauties of Pro Tools uh, there was a time when I was doing full brass uh, to 24 track and I didn't have a, a choice but to, you know what, give it your best shot because you're not going to get a second shot. But with Pro Tools, being able to do a close mic and a distant mic and able to blend, uh, you know, bump a downbeat, tune, whatever later, uh, it just makes for a better product. In yeah, my and I think what you're hinting at is this idea of like, you may not, know immediately, like, how is the brass sound supposed to live in this track within the mix? Exactly, and, the, yeah. and the close mic and the distant mic sound, you know, they're totally different perspectives on it, right? Right. One, uh, the, the distant thing, in my mind, is really very symphonic. And if it's that kind of song, then good for you. You've got room mic set up, and it will it will fit right into that symphonic setting. If it's uptown funk, man, you want it tight and in your face and punchy and Bam, and you want to hear the the detail and the spit on the, yeah. the horn and the and the mouthpiece and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, uh, by and large, I use ribbon mics for for uh, brass. Uh, 
it's not a hard and fast rule, but they just sound good. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, don't park them too close to the bell. Uh, live wise, you know, that's a completely different animal. But for studio recording, I would at least leave a foot or two or three, depending on the instrument. And frankly, how loud the player plays. There's a trombone player here in town that, man, he just knocks my head off. His his level of dynamic is different than the other guys. And you have to accommodate for that. Yeah. Um, who is that? I'm not going there. <laughs> um, so I want to keep my friends. All right. Sounds good. The uh, if you were in a home studio situation, you're like, oh man, I don't have any ribbon mites. I need to get one, but I do have a dynamic and a condenser. What thoughts might you advise would, somebody about those two choices? Uh, I would go to condenser for a trumpet and sax. Uh, you can get away with a dynamic on a trombone that that actually sounds pretty darn good. Uh, believe it or not, a 421 sounds pretty nice on a trombone. Nice. And right, cool. you would not think that because I, I think kick drum mic or tom mic or something like that with a 421, uh, even on a given day, a 57. You know, again, it just kind of depends on the player and and what, what you're going for vibe-wise. All right, cool. Well, Rockstars, we're going to take a break for a minute. We'll come back in for the jam session, the second half. We're going to talk about working with Al Schmidt, One Republic, and Switchfoot, of all things. So we'll see you guys in just a minute for the Jam Session. Reminder, we've got links to what we're talking about in the show notes, including a YouTube playlist where you can go check out Doug's great work and go listen to these amazing records. We'll see you in a minute. Cheers. You know what it feels like when inspiration hits and you want to capture your great song idea, but then the studio gets in the way and it's just no fun anymore. Wouldn't it feel awesome if you could simplify the process of producing your music from inspiration to final masterpiece? PreSona Studio One is a powerful digital audio workstation that helps you compose your music with a complete collection of virtual instruments for keyboards and drums, MIDI tools for hip-hop, EDM, and film, a flexible sketch pad with chord charts and key recognition for songwriting and arranging, and classic effects pedals and amp simulators for guitar and bass. With 37 high-quality effects plugins, integrated Melodyne, and drag-and-drop flexibility, you can easily edit and polish your mixes. And Studio One is the only DAW with a built-in mastering studio so that you can take your record from writing to radio ready all in one place. Download your free version of Studio One Prime and get started now at PreSona wherever sound takes you. If you want to capture every nuance of a great performance in your studio, then you're going to need to start with a microphone that is crafted with great care and attention to detail. Jay-Z Mics and Riga Latvia designs amazing sounding microphones that are handcrafted with jeweler's precision to bring you incredible detail in your recordings. At the heart of Jay-Z Microphones is the unique Golden Drop capsule design, which uses a lighter, faster diaphragm that delivers great clarity and fidelity while avoiding distracting colorations and distortions. This is my voice right now on the new Amethyst microphone. With Class A discrete amplifier circuitry, extremely low self-noise, and advanced built-in shock mount technology to bring an expensive sound to your studio for an affordable price. Jay-Z offers a five-year warranty, free shipping to the U.S., and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Plus, for a limited time, you can use the coupon code ROCKSTARS to get 50% off the Amethyst microphone at jayzmic.com. 
Hey, Rockstars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Doug Serrett joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. We're going to dig into some cool record-making questions and talk about some of his projects. Doug, you ready to jam, dude? Yes, sir. Bring All it. right. So uh, one of the people that you've worked with is Al Schmidt. Um, talk to us a little bit about what some of those projects were and, um, you know, share a story. Sure. Uh, Samsung launches uh, a new phone every year, it appears. I think they all do now. And they wanted a theme, and they've been doing a theme every year. And they needed to record a theme song, so when you fire your phone up, this music plays. And I got called to do the recording of that. The, The guys flew in from Korea to Nashville. We recorded at Ocean Way. It was a 40 piece orchestra. Yeah, that's us. that's so you shared a video with us, yeah. which is in the YouTube playlist. Exactly. That shows that whole setup. It's really cool. It's crazy uh, that, that that a company is willing to hire 40 people in a studio to have a theme song for a phone. I mean, that kind of boggles my mind at some level, but I love it because it's certainly unique to what it is. All that to say, I got to do the recording of this 40 piece orchestra and made sure uh, I had talked to Al on the phone uh, before we recorded, and we set up out outlier mics so that he could do a surround thing. I had four C12s in the corners uh, in Omni so that he could add any kind of ambience and big that he wanted, and then the close mics for uh, what we were doing. The The one thing I learned from Al talking with him was that uh, the spot mics, the, the close mics, if you will, that I had a Decatree, and and then the C12s, and then the, the 67s, by and large, for the uh, spot mics. Oh, okay. And he he told me to put the 67s in Omni. And I said, doesn't that kind of negate the whole spot mic aspect of a microphone? He said, well, sort of, but they sound better. <laughs> you know, what's cool is um, Steve Jenowick, also on the podcast, talked as well about working with Al. Okay. And it, same same thing. You guys both learned from Al that the power of having all these mics, when they're in Omni, you can have more or less of them. They can, you know, pan, maybe pan over each other and they don't phase out and get all weird amongst each other, right? Right. It doesn't get smaller because that generally, if you're turning up spot mics, you're taking away the bigness of the sound because mm. you're trying to get, uh, you're trying to get that specific instrument. And and generally it shrinks down. So, uh, by and large, he used the Deca Tree with a you know with the C12s for the surround and just a little bit of close enhancements, maybe to grab a a, a specific like a viola line that may have been a melody or counter melody at, at whatever point. Well, so I noticed also in a you know different situation, but uh, I was doing drums in my dead room and and I had my tube mics in cardioid for overhead. So I was doing kind of like a Glenn Johnson, one above and yeah. one over near the floor, Tom. And there was a harshness to the cymbals. I was like, man, what this is, you know, I thought, well, I'm in a dead room. Why don't I try them in Omni since it's not going to, there's not much room to pick up anyway. And sure enough, I was struck by like how it took a harshness off the edge mm-hmm. that I didn't expect. So it, it, The top end opens up really dramatically when you go to Omni. You, you can look at the curves uh on on what Omni does versus cardioid, and it's just it's an openness and an air that's it's really beautiful. If you can afford 
to deal with the leakage, it, it's a great thing to have. Yeah, and I guess one trick that we forget about is with Omni, you can get as close as you want to stuff because you don't have the proximity effect. Right. And that's how you have less room. You just get closer to the instrument, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So C12s in the corners, a deca tree. Uh, tell us what a deca tree is. Deca is uh, deca tree is a, a microphone placement that was developed by the Deca Recording Company, I think, in the '40s. I'm sure the Google would uh, have access to that, and you can learn all about it. But generally, it's M49s, and uh, I, I take it back. Mistake there. Uh, it's an M50, which is an M49, but with an acrylic dome in front of the capsule to make the uh, top end shelve out. It it goes to Omni the higher the frequency is, but in the lower frequencies, it's cardioid. Interesting. In engineering design, I think it's brilliant, and it is really the sound of a deca tree. Interesting. So that makes sense. So the highs going to Omni is what we just talked about, sounding open. smoother and more yeah, open. Exactly. But the lows is sort of the tonality of the instrument, so the, the directionality maybe helps you localize it or something. Yeah. I don't know. yeah. Don't and I sound smart? I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. The the deca tree is is I, I view it as you're miking the room, and then you put musicians in a room. And now, if you need more or less of something, you push them back or pull them forward or tell them to play out or, hey, violins at bar seventeen, you know, give me a little extra dynamic there so that so that you're gonna uh, mix yourself. Now, is there anything to having all those mics on an orchestral session where you need to check the polarity or the phasing or any of that kind of stuff? How does that yeah, come all, into the picture? Yeah, it, it very much plays into the picture, and everything is clicked out beforehand to make sure that everything is absolutely in phase with everything else. So is it strictly polarity? It's either like it's either A or B, or is there a timing thing that you have to adjust between different microphones? Uh, the, the time, uh, uh, it's an A or B. The timing thing is is what the room does to it. The deca tree is specifically, uh, I believe it's a foot, no, it's three feet from the center point, three feet to the left, three feet to the right, and three feet to the front of the center point. And that's Six the, foot wings, wingspan. The, honestly. <laughs> and that's the, the uh, general setup for a deca tree. And then the C12s were in the corners, really just to, to give him also something. Also an Omni? Yes. Um, what does it mean to click it out? Uh, there's a box. Uh, I, think, I think Cricket is the manufacturer, and it puts out a pulse that, that has a phase relationship uh, positive. Uh, it starts with an up and then goes down, and, and you put that in front of the mic, go into the control room with the receiver, put it in front of the speaker, and if it is a positive polarity, then it turns green. And if it's negative, it's red. And you want everything to be green. So every somewhere along the way, somebody holds this clicker in front of the microphone. And then they listen in the control room. And if there's a polarity issue, you hit the button and make it green. So is that a two-man job then? It is a two-man job. Okay. Um, and then that makes sense hearing that, you know, on like a big orchestral thing. Do you think that same kind of clicking technique can work for checking the, the mics on a drum kit? Or is that something where you really just have to use your ears in the control room? I, I would absolutely I, I'd do that on drum kits. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. I do, I do it on just about everything. And it, and it always works? Or do you have to go and undo a decision 
when you hear it later. Um, in other words, are there, is there something funny about the proximity of all these mics on the drum kits um, and the, maybe the fact that they're cardioid that somehow bucks the, the science of, of clicking it out? It could. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think... I feel like you're guessing. If you're not clicking it, you're guessing. And you're, if it's, you know, you, and you can change it after the fact or before. I'm talking all of this is happening before we've recorded a note. So I feel like if you did that, you know. And if you're going, it's still not what I want to be hearing, you can, you can hit your polarity switch and go, you know what, that's, that's out of polarity, but I like it better. Right. That doesn't mean you got to know the rules to break the rules. And I would always go with the rules as a start and then see what you can do to manipulate it after that. Yeah. At least then you're, you're flipping polarity on something knowing that it's an intentional flip. Exactly. And it's kind of nice to be able to say, you know, the kick is in phase and I've chosen to make the overheads out of phase. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, because the other way you could end up with a kick that's out of phase and, and uh, overheads that are in phase, and maybe you didn't know, it, but the other way would have sounded better. You know? Right, right. Um, okay, cool. Uh, any other stuff that you enjoyed learning uh, working with uh, Al? Oh, also, let's let's describe this theme song thing. So one of the cool things in the video is Samsung has some little six note. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. I don't know, remember how it goes. But the wasn't the goal to compose a whole orchestral piece around that in the same way that you've composed a film score or something like that? Exactly. And and that's what it started with. And then we just uh, expounded on that to include a full orchestra. And uh, we got to record it here in Nashville. Uh, the guys took the hard drive, jumped on an airplane, flew to L.A., and Al mixed it. And, uh, you know, I, I followed up with him after the fact and said, you know, was everything okay? Is there something I could do different, better? Al, Al Smith's the king as far as I'm concerned. He does nice. orchestra better than really anybody on the planet. So cool. Um, you know, that's one of those funny things. That is a thing that would probably be tricky to transition from home studio into orchestra. You kind of have to go <laughs> straight to the pro level and come up through the ranks there, I would yeah. think. Yeah, exactly. Um was I going to ask you about that? The uh, I don't remember. All right. Well, so let's let's go to another artist. Let's okay. talk about some of these other projects you did too. Uh, one Republic. Share a story about uh, working with those guys. What was a what was one of the challenges for you on that record? Uh, what did you do? Keeping up was the challenge. Those guys work a lot, and uh, they've always got several things going on. Uh, I'll tell you how we started with them. The a guy that lives here in Nashville, Brandon Collins, was a roommate with one of the members of in college, was a roommate with one of the members of One Republic. And they were in Europe playing the MTV Europe award show. And it was going to be on television. And uh, Ryan Tedder is the lead singer of One Republic, great songwriter, great producer. And he wanted to have a string quartet on stage to play with their current single, which at that point was Let's Hurt Tonight. And they said, hey, Brandon, can you write a quartet chart for this and send us a mock-up? So Brandon wrote a quartet thing to the song, sent him a mock-up, and they said, oh, man, this sounds great. Thanks so much. Can you record that? 
so that we can have a, a safety net in case the players aren't all they could be that will still sound good on television because millions of people are going to be hearing us and we don't want to sound bad. So Brandon ends up coming to my place to record this quartet for us to email to Europe for One Republic to have on their uh, television, uh, not debut, but their television show that they were uh, playing a Let's Hurt Tonight. Right, so in the Turned same way red. that, that, that um, some artists might have a backup singer that doubles the lead just in case, you know, Britney Spears dancing around on stage can't hit the note right. and it's still there, or or multiple backups that are maybe even not seen. For a string section, you could have some, you know, some string tracks to just make sure it sounds full just yeah. in case the live stuff isn't coming across right. Right, or th there was, you know, there was pyro and there was all kinds of stuff going on and I don't know in how. In the studio while you were recording? No, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> I've never been able to mic pyro. I, maybe I, I've never tried. If, if I if I figure that out, we could both be rich. Uh, it was, you know, I just didn't know what the stage volume was and how accurate the mics and how cleanly the mics will be able to pick up the players on stage. So I think mostly it was insurance. And I think that's more common now than it's ever been. And I get it because it's like, you know, singing the national anthem at the Super Bowl. You don't want to mess up. Right, yeah, exactly. You want it to be great. If your audience is a million or a billion. Print the lyrics on the inside of your eyelids. Whatever it takes, yeah, to, to not mess it up. But and that that's how that relationship started. And come to find out the reason that they were in Europe at that moment was that Ryan Tedder was working with you too on their on the last record that came out. And that's how I got to be involved in that one too. So oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, well, let me, uh, let's talk about you two in just a minute, but, but before we do quartet in the studio, now this sounds like this may have been quite a different experience from recording the, the 40 piece orchestra over at Ocean Way. Yeah. Um, how, how did you approach recording a quartet? What are some smart things to know? Um, I think that's more accessible to most of us with home studios. We might have an opportunity to record a quartet. Right. What's a good way to approach it? Uh, well, first off, Ocean Way's room is probably 40 by 70. And that's what it takes to have that many people in the room there. The quartet was recorded at my place and the room is 11 by 20. So it's, you know, that's much more home studio size than than uh, Ocean Way will ever be. Uh, I, I, I still subscribe to using as few mics as possible in that kind of situation just for the phase thing that we talked about earlier. I put the C12 up as a room mic. I put a single mic up for two violins, another mic for a viola, and another mic for cello. Interesting. Okay, cool. And that was it. It was four mics. So how do you put up a single mic? Well, so so where would you seat people in a situation like that? How do you put a single mic on two violins? Uh, I seat them in a crescent, uh, ju just a not not a full semicircle so that the ends are facing each other, but really a a chevron is actually if you want to look that. That's one, what it's that's called, actually, a chevron. Uh, the shape is the chevron, like you know, on a on an army, the 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 bars. Oh yeah, that's okay. a chevron. Okay. And I would do two like this way. a V way. almost, yeah. Yeah, just a really wide V. Yeah. Uh, I would do two on one side, two on the other, and 
off you go. Okay, so here's a quick question yeah. um, that I think I had to learn is, um, do you just decide where you want to put everybody or do you go, how do quartets typically sit together and play together? And that's the way they sit. Yeah, I, well, I've done enough orchestral stuff to know that you know there is an order, just like there's a woodwind order and a brass order. Uh, so it's from my left to right, it's two violins, a viola, and a cello. Right, and that's the way it would look on a stage right. if they were playing together. To to rearrange that without being aware of it would it be a bit like miking up the drum kit before the drummer gets there, and he's like, "What is the? Why is the hi hat behind my stool? And the, right, <laughs> why is the kick drum over to the left? You know? Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't make any sense, it, and it wouldn't. And they're very used to being in that order, so I I, I think it would almost it would be uncomfortable. I, I'm making assumptions, but I think it would be uncomfortable for them to to have the cello in the middle and the violins on each end. I don't, I, I can't imagine that they would be uh, comfortable playing in that situation. Yeah, and so that kind of topic, I mean, I don't know how often we run into that, but it's just that reminder that, um, you know, when you know, you know as an engineer what the musicians are going to need, but the the first time you do it, there's all these opportunities to learn, like, okay, well, I should ask the musician, what do you, how do you normally like to play your instrument? Let's start with that. I even will ask a musician, I'm like, hey, cool, do you like have a, a, like an upright bass? Do you have a favorite place to mic this upright bass? Yeah. Let me start by checking that out. Sure. Because they might know. There oh, might they be a do. Thing, they you know? know. Or even a drummer, you know, you could ask that. I mean, because a drummer might be like, oh, I hate the standard modern thing. I like it if you put a ribbon up here and a ribbon down there and that's it, you know? Sure. During the height of record making, Tom Dowd, Muscle Shoals, Stax Studios, Ardent Studios, and the New York City Record Plant all turned to one company to build their consoles. That company is now Spectra 1964, carried on today through Bill Cheney and Jim Romney. The extremely stable, high-speed circuit design of the 101 amplifier provides unequaled headroom, low noise, and linear output irrespective of transient audio peaks, giving you cleaner, punchier, dynamic recordings. Spectra 1964 brings you the sound of ZZ Top, Aerosmith, Bruce Springsteen, King Crimson, John Lennon, and so many more. Created by the missile engineers who are central in rolling out the systems that protected the free world for over half a century, Spectra 1964 literally brings rocket science to your studio. With the STX600 mic pre with built-in complimenter, full-frequency passive BBDI, and C610 dedicated complimenter, start making records that last a life at spectra1964.com. What are some other things about setting up for the quartet? Uh, because, you know, if you're doing that, they're probably showing up. They're probably on the clock. You probably don't want to waste anybody's time. As an right. engineer, how how could you start setting up for that and have everything that they're going to need so that you're mostly ready for them? Uh, well, if you're unsure about uh, musician order, placement, standing up, sitting down, stool, chair, all those things. Uh, ask an engineer buddy that does that more than you do. And well, I hate to say it, but that's you this time, Doug. Well, that's okay. <laughs> you know, I, I had to ask somebody. I had to hang around it for a year or two to figure out, okay, this is, quote, the standard of how, you know, this is a great place to start. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what I generally try to do. So I have everything set up, clicked out, 
and a passing signal. I've already done a headphone mix before anybody ever steps in the room. So you, that means you go out there and you put the headphones on for each musician and you listen, you go, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm um, listening to the mix that they're getting, not through the speakers in the control room, but sitting on the floor at, because, you know, head, things break, headphone boxes go bad. Yep. And if you've got extension cables, cut out the left and right. Sure. Or swap them. Yeah. Here's a, here's a common one for the extension cable on the headphones. They go like, I can't hear any bass at all. I don't hear any kicking. You know, and you're like, I'm cranking or vocal or something like that. Yeah. And then you're like, hold on, you go out and listen. And the left and right are shorting out. So right. it's canceling everything. It's like flipping phase and canceling what's in the middle. Yeah. So that's that's a good sign. If people are acting weird on the headphones, go put them on. It could be broken. And I try to get the box close enough that they don't have to use an extension thing because they're just not well made. Yeah, no, and, and usually they aren't. Just straight out of the headphone into the box, uh, whatever that takes to make that happen, to have one less variable to to mess up. All right, so uh, more geeky details about sitting up for the string quartet. Um, they might need music stands in front of them. Absolutely, with stand lights. With stand lights, all right. Um, battery stand lights, okay? Sure. Okay, all right. Make sure uh, as, as bright a bulb as you can get. Uh because some people are going to want to, hey, let's get a little ambience going here and turn the lights down. And it's like, I can't see what I'm playing. Right. But you can still have the vibe, but have a stand light to be able to see your music. Yeah, because those string players part. are going to be reading music. Yeah, they're not making things up. If it's not a note on a page, they're not playing it. Yeah, exactly. That's an, that's a, that was an interesting thing to learn working with orchestral musicians in the studio. Like, I would just, you know, come up with something there. They're like, uh, <laughs> yeah, but but you've got to understand that it's times four. You've right. got to come up with right. something, and now everybody's got to memorize that. Well, it's just, it's a huge time waste. And that's okay. I mean, if you've got the money for it, that's fine. And they, they don't mind head charting that kind of stuff, but you've got to understand the cost of four people times what they get per hour plus a studio plus an engineer. Yeah, That's an expensive proposition pretty quick. All right, so you got um, four seats or stools. Um, what, uh, in what, quartet you, chairs, yeah. If you had to guess, would you say most quartet players just want a, a folding chair? Yes. Okay. So you got four folding chairs. You got four music stands in front of them. Right. Um, where are we putting the spot mics? Um, above. And, and which mics are we, are we choosing off the bat? Sure. Uh, uh, well, the room mic was the C12. And uh, what I've been doing lately for the violins, uh, probably three feet above the instrument, uh, uh, a Gefell UM70. That's a great mic. I That's wish I had one of those. Mic. I've got two. They're really wonderful. And so you're you're putting that three feet above the violins, right between the two chairs, sort of right. looking down. Yeah, and it's cardioid. And is it up? Is it above where the bow is hitting the string, or is it sort of? Yeah above and looking towards the violins, like from the music stand perspective or something? No, it, it, it's really above their head uh, for the violins and and shooting down where the where the bow is on the string. And cardioid the, the, would be a good starting? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. All right. And then um, do, we, the, do we want to put low cuts on that or just let, let it be full frequency, full range? Uh, I do full range and 
now my template has an EQ, a high pass EQ on it, just because I I uh, at the mix decision, right? Right. Uh, I I don't I don't think it would hurt me to high pass uh, violins, but you know with a cello or a double bass it certainly could. So yeah. I just have uh, in my template on every mic input I've got a, a an EQ high passed at eighty. I think um, if our room isn't as big as your room, can we get away with that spot mic being a little closer on the violins, or does it, do you start to have diminishing returns where it gets too? Scratchy and detail-y. Yeah. I, I would say uh, as far away as you can comfortably get them is really what you want to do right. because they're gonna you're gonna get a, enough attack uh, just by the nature of the instrument. Now, if you were doing a fiddle session for a country thing and it was a solo fiddle, that's a little bit different. Yeah, uh, and I would choose a different mic. Like I would, I would just move the C12 and put it a foot or two from the fiddle because you do want more detail. Yeah, because they're they're really they're going to be driving it or it's going to be a solo thing. You know, they're, they're working. Usually a fiddle thing is kind of working around the vocal. Right. When there's a gap, they're going to, they're going to do a little turn or a, or a counter melody or a something. And you want that to be a little more aggressive than, than trying to make it sound like four people working as one unit. It, it's a guy. It's almost like another voice. Yeah. It's a trade. It's, you know, there's a, there's a human voice and then there's the violin, the fiddle voice. And right. Trade-offs and stuff. Okay, so now let's move over to the viola. What do we do with the viola? Viola, same thing. Uh, and I try to measure, uh, and by measure, I don't necessarily mean a tape measure, but but I like like I'll uh, I'll have the mic three feet above the violin too. Uh, KM eighty four is what I'm using uh, for the viola. For the viola, is that a small diaphragm? It is. Interesting. So the Gefell is more like a medium diaphragm, oh, right? Oh, it, it's a large diaphragm. It's large, yeah. Yeah, honestly. So do we think about small versus large as we almost think about like the Gefell is a little warmer as yeah. a large diaphragm, and that and that's a good balance against these, you know, small, tiny metal strings on a, on violins? Exactly. And the, the um, viola is a darker instrument, so the brighter mic is a good balance for that? Yeah, it keeps me from having to twist a knob and— uh, as, I mean, well, you've got an EQ. I think it's inevitable, and and most of the EQ I, EQ I do is subtractive. Okay. Um, you just if you can pick the right mic, then you don't have to EQ, which takes phase relationships uh, out of the picture uh, a lot more than than if you're having to overcompensate for a for a dark microphone that you need. On a bright end, you know, on is you need subtractive EQ understood to be more phase friendly than additive EQ, or is that not, is it not necessarily a thing? Uh, I don't know that I could technically answer that, but it certainly feels that way to me. All right, uh, uh, that that's where I start. If I've got an instrument that's dark, uh, I will subtract some of the darkness before I will just add top end. Yeah. To compensate for how dark it is. Yeah, it's a really fun first-time discovery too. When you begin to do that, and you're like, "That sounds brighter," and I didn't add anything. You know, right? It's got rid of some stuff. Yeah. And then, of course, you end up bringing the level up after you do that. Sure. Too, probably compensate in the same way that compression is really making quiet things louder, even though technically it's making loud things quieter. Right. You know. Right. Um, okay, so then we move over to the uh, oh. How about the mic stands? What's the smart position for the stands? Are they behind the players looking over their shoulders toward this spot? Or are they 
do we need these big Atlas stands that reach well over the um, music stands to get that three feet above? Or do we just, you know, like, these are the dumb, awkward questions no, that, we, that uh, we run into when we're trying to mic this up in our studios, our home studios. Yeah. Um, I've got Atlas boomed. I mean, it's it's back to the to the gear for days thing. I I just felt like if you have the right tool, it makes your job infinitely easier. And to have an Atlas boom versus uh, a, a tripod with a with an arm on it, uh, I, you know, I, I'm not really excited about putting a, a particularly expensive mic on something that can be kicked over pretty easy. Yeah, so you're saying you, that I shouldn't put my U67 on I'm a $10 mic stand. You can do whatever you want with your mic. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, I mean, teetering it, over three feet over violins that might be from the 1700s. Right. That cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that might be a problem. All right. But so there, there I, are, I use Atlas booms. They're good. Uh, just with the Atlas booms thing. What are the use cases for a big a boom stand, an Atlas boom stand, or or any other brand in a studio where you're like, oh, that yeah, I should invest in some money and some stands because I'm going to use them often for these applications. What are the first ones that come to mind for you? Uh, microphone brands? No, no, no. The the use cases for big oh, gotcha. tall mic stands. Uh, String, certainly anything that you're going to have a mic significantly over your head, even if it's a foot over your head, that that's a long fall and can cause a lot of damage yeah. to the mic if it hits the wrong thing. And it can. Uh, the other thing, honestly, I like about the Atlas Boom is it's weighted at the bottom and it's a much smaller footprint on the floor. So the the, the triangle legs take up twice the space. Yeah, more so to you, trip on. Yeah, the, the the likelihood of it getting kicked or knocked over, and it's a lot easier to knock over a, a, a tripod leg than it is a, a heavy base uh, weighted atlas. And uh, drum overheads probably, right? They're probably oh, yeah. useful for Absolutely. drum overheads. So yeah. drum overheads, string stuff, getting the mic up a little bit high, room mics. Yeah, depending on, depending on what you're miking with the room mics, but yeah. Uh, any of that, uh, if it, if it's going to have a long way to fall, you want it on something that is not likely to fall at so, all. So you're not going to need it so much necessarily for vocals or for, um, although sometimes people use big big ass mic stands for vocals too, but you don't necessarily need it for vocals or or acoustic guitars or guitar amps or bass amps or any right. of that stuff. Right, and and you know the like kick drum mics that that there's. You just get a small stand, again, with a small footprint that you can manipulate around the drum kit pretty easily. Yeah. Um, the, the overheads, for sure. I like using a, a big Atlas boom because I feel like I can get the mic uh, in front of the singer. Uh, and you may have experienced, you know, sometimes singers get a little demonstrative with their hands. Yeah. And they end up Hitting knocking your mic stand. And it's like, oh, it was so, you know, it was a great vocal. And, eh. Now we yeah, gotta, gotta do it. Thump in there and you gotta right. do it again. Um, that's why I set up this stand the way you are. Yeah. Right there where I take a tripod stand, I go up as high as I can and come down at an angle and it leaves more room for your hands to move around underneath it. Right. Hopefully. And, and we yeah. still knock them though. Well, sure. I mean it it's gonna happen, but you try to do everything you can to not let it happen. But even for, for musicians, like for a guitar player in the, in this situation. He can move his music and get to that without bumping a mic stand and comfortably, you know, keep the song going. 
Yeah. Um, okay, so let's move over to the cello. What are we doing with the cello? How are we micing that up? Uh, cello is uh, a 47 that uh, I hang it just above the stand light. So it's, it's far and away the closest mic uh, of the group. Because that's closer than three feet. Yeah, and how, how many feet? Do, how would you describe how far that actually is? As we're trying to visualize it, yeah, maybe a couple of feet, but it's it's also in 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 one way, it's very much in front of the soundboard of the instrument, just like hanging the UM70 above the violins is above the soundboard of the instrument. You you want to put the mic where you can get the most volume out of the instrument, and then blend it to taste in the control room. Um, and so we're picking a. a 47 is a tube mic. Yeah. And we're picking a 47 because it's, I almost envision it as a combination of the large diaphragm tube gives us the warmth in the low end of the cello, but a 47 sort of also has this this upper mid presence to it. So you're getting the bow action and things like that. Exactly. It, it I, In a perfect world, I'd have an M49 on the cello because I think it sounds depending on the cello, uh, a little bit better than the 47. Well, you accidentally put them all in the decatree earlier, so that's yeah. why you don't have Thank them. you very much. <laughs> and, you know, what, what have you got left? And it kind of comes to that some days. Um, all right, so then you mentioned a C12 as the room mic. Are we talking about a mono Omni room mic, or we have a pair of C12s? I did a mono. And the, where, did, where? what's the smart place to put that? Do you just listen to the quartet and wherever you're, wherever you like the sound of them, that's where it goes? I... I actually set the C12 to the center, of, to the middle of the room, not in the center of the room, but but in the middle of the width of the room, and then set the chairs up around that. So at the, it's it's looking toward the apex of the Chevron rock stars. Exactly. Thank you very much. We've learned words today. We have apex and Chevron. <laughs> and that is the penultimate quartet miking setup. I think. <laughs> Um, what do we need to know about the mic pre side, or are we compressing this stuff? What are we doing to these sounds as we record them? Uh, and, and do we blend them together, or do we put them to separate tracks? I put them to separate tracks just because we can now. Back in the day, we we laid all the strings to two tracks, and you better get it right. <laughs> you better hope it was right. Yeah. Um, and then this is a... It's probably smart for us to envision the final result of this, too. So you can be recording a quartet that is playing only those four parts, and that's all that's ever getting recorded. And that might be one sound. I mean, I, I picture like the Beatles, you know, right. some, like quartet in there playing something. I don't know which song I'm supposed to be thinking of. but Eleanor Rigby. Eleanor Rigby, thank you. You're welcome. Um, but then... You also have situations sometimes where you have the quartet and it's like, okay, now we're, we're layering more strings on it. We're trying to make it sound more like a string section, like maybe it was 16 strings or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, and I, in my experience, you lean towards that room mic more in those, like you said earlier, the room mics are more like capturing an orchestral version of something. We, we were talking about it with the brass section. Yeah. And the close mics is more like it's going to be an Eleanor Rigby. Right. If if it's aggressive, uh, you, you were asking about compression, and you know, depending on the song, if it, if it's um, yesterday, that's not an aggressive song at all. So we'll stay in the Beatles theme here. So it's it really is. Uh, that was not a quartet. It was an octet. Right. Okay. And then I believe Eleanor Rigby was a quartet, and it's really aggressive. I mean, the cello is 
he's he's attacking mm-hmm. that bow and that's part of the sound i think the compression of that very much makes it the the driving rhythm of not as much as a drum but it's kind of taking the place of the drum in in that it's 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 doing the pulse of of what's going on yeah. Well, it's such a great takeaway what you shared with us about the, you know, having these spot mics, but also making sure you got that room mic and make sure that every one of those mics is killer on its own because you might need it on its own at some point. Right. That might be what you're leaning on. And uh, I remember like doing first string sections and, and, you know, I didn't know, you know, somebody else was requesting it. At, well, actually it was me requesting it on some of them too. And I didn't really know what the result I was, I was going to go for in the end, you know, it was like in a big experiment so it's good to cover your bases by doing some of these basic things and making sure that what you've got is going to work for you, whichever way you want to go with it. Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Rockstars of Drums will show you how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a Nashville session drummer and a Grammy-winning studio. Want to start mastering your own records? Rockstars of Mastering walks you through exactly how I mastered my own record using nothing but plugins in PreSona Studio One. Want to learn how to create a mix that doesn't suck but rocks instead? At Mix Master Bundle, I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins so that you can have punchy, powerful drums drums, guitars that rock, bass you can feel, and a mix that is in your face. Plus, it's totally free as my way of saying thanks for listening. Then go to MixMasterBundle.com to get started for free now and look for the clickable link in the show notes below. You too was another artist you worked with. Yeah. And there was, there was a lot of strings on that session. Oh my gosh. Tell us about what that session was, working with those guys. Talk to us about managing all those tracks as well. It was, uh, believe it or not, it was a string quintet. Uh, if, if you go listen to the to the feed, uh, there's a they did a specific mix called Saint Peter's String Version of uh, Lights of Home, and all of that was cut in my eleven by twenty room. And you just so the video looks like a whole string section on stage, but this is again doing strings that was then included with a live performance or something. Right, like that? right. Okay. The 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 video isn't necessarily what actually occurred. How's that? We live in that kind of world, don't, now, we, don't though? we? Don't we though? All right. So quintet. Um, what was the additional instrument to make it go from quartet to quintet? It was a double bass. Oh, double bass. Oh, great. How the yeah. hell do you mic a double bass? With an 87 down there where the bridge is. Okay. All right. And and um, what do we like about an 87? So we're, we're not doing a tube for the double bass. Didn't have one. Didn't have one. All right. I have two. I have a C12 and a 47, and I'm out of tube mics at that point. So um, is it also... Uh, is there something about the 87 that I feel like an 87 gives you a little bit more of a clear focus on stuff. It's, it doesn't sort of fuzz out in the way a tube mic does. Agreed. And I also feel like it has a presence on it that's almost like a lower mid-range presence rather than a super high. I'm probably wrong. You look, Somebody's going to show me a graph I'm like, dude, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> that's just the way it sounds to me. Somehow it sounds like detail in the in the 1k yeah. towards 2k range or something I, w- I would like agree that, you know 
and it it makes the 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 bow action of the bass. I mean, there's plenty of low end coming out of a double bass. So what you really need is the front, the attack, to make it not be aggressive in a bad way, but but to be clear and and driving. Right, right. And I I, I guess to go below one k, I've I've heard people talk often about you know the eight hundred range is is a great range for bringing out the presence of a bass part. Hmm. Which maybe that's maybe that's all part of that, you know. It's like it, maybe it brings out that that kind of lower mid stuff. Yeah, I, I I would say it depends on the tune. Yeah, and the key of the tune. Yeah, I mean it's really there are so many variables in that regard. All right, well let's let's take that all this stuff we've recorded with the strings and take it into the control room. What's what's happening with these tracks in Pro Tools in your session? Uh, I've, I'm cutting everything to its own track, so that there is flexibility later. The uh, shocking was for me at the time, it's not so much anymore, but the shocking part of, of doing the stuff for the U2 record was they asked for stems. They didn't want the Pro Tools session. They didn't want this. Because we would do so many passes just because we wanted it to sound big, but we didn't have the player's book or the room book to make that happen. So we would we would do a pass of like cello and double bass only to get that aggression and, and be able to have that control and then add the violins and violas to that and, and do a few passes of that. And then the cello and the double bass would take a break and we would do the viola player can also play violin, which I don't even understand how you can do that to read a viola clef and then go to a violin clef. And my mind's not that smart. But all that to say, the viola player could play a violin, so we would have her play violin with the other two violinists, and we could do passes of violin only. Because if you look at an orchestra, it's if you've got 40 players, it's not 10 violins, 10 violas, and 10 cellos, and 10 double basses. The, the lower the instrument, the fewer you have. You need more violins if you want to look at it that way yeah, to make the it, sound. I mean, I almost think about it like um, the violins are, you know, they can if, if, give me a violin and I can show you just how much it sounds like getting your teeth drilled, you know, <laughs> especially on that high metal E string. Right. And um, and so when you start to layer them all, it smooths it out and smooth the choruses it out and stuff. And you get that, yeah. that big lush sound where you can't quite hear the detail or the beginning of the note. Just right. all, and and all that's what together. the room mic aspect of that is for too. I, I really favor the room mic because it's it's kind of it's kind of like a miking a child or it's not at all, but <laughs> in that, you know, you don't want a child right in your face speaking at full volume. It's just like, oh, it's harsh. I know how you mic a child. You don't let them know that you're recording them. <laughs> and you put the mic far away. Far enough away where the room sound doesn't detract from it, but yeah. Yeah, because they're going to want to lean right in on it like this and it's going to sound like ah. Anyway. That was pretty good, man. Thank you. Um, all that to say, the, the further the microphone is away, the less of, of the attack, so it's going to have a rounder sound and be more pleasing to the ear. In general, unless you absolutely want that aggression. So, in in the situation you described for you too, you're you're doing stems. So you're actually building the one instrument at a time into Pro Tools and building the section that way, right? Is that what you just described? Well, it, it wasn't an instrument at a time as much as it was uh, 
sections at a time. Right, right. Like the cello double bass thing together because they were doing this really aggressive rhythm part went together, yeah. Yeah, and then the violins were very much long lines compared to that. So you want to be able to control how much of that aggressive pulse from the cello and the double bass versus the violins. So I sent them, I think, five stems with reverb, which that stunned me as well. But that's what they wanted. They, they wanted didn't want to be able to, to recreate that. Or anything. They wanted to be able to take what I sent them, drop it in their mix, and go to work. Nice. And that's what they did. Well, so that does bring up a topic about doing studio stuff for the live stage. Um, I've noticed it's remarkable how the the rules change. So, for example, I had an artist in here, our band, where you know we're recording and it's drums, bass, and guitar, and then they couldn't play shows with the drummer. So it's like, hey, can we make stem drum tracks so that we can play this on the stage? I think it was even my suggestion. I don't know. An experiment, too. But it's like, let's try it, you know? And I actually set the guitar player up to play along in the control room and just hear it cranking out of the speakers because I was like, this has got to work out of a pair of stage monitors. It makes sense. And it really changed the mix. All of a sudden, the close mics get like really jacked up in the mix for you to be able to feel it and play along with it. And same thing with what you just said. It's like those stems, you know, you need to have that control over like, well, we need more of this part against this other part uh, um, during the actual performance. You don't want it pre-committed. Yeah. Because there's there's too much variables in the in the final location. Yeah, you don't know Every necessarily what, what location you're going to be in to even see see what it's about. All right, so um, we'll stay on the string thing for one more time. Um, You've recorded an ensemble in your Pro Tools and you're about to mix it for a record, not for a live stage thing. Okay. Um, Whether it's a quartet or a big string, lush string section, and it's going, it's accompanying a pop song, for example. What are some things that can be helpful about how you mix all that together so that it really sounds great in the final mix? What are some go-to things? Like uh, you talked about EQ, a little bit of subtractive EQ. Are those EQs that happen, um, you solo each mic and listen for the honky frequency that's bugging you a little bit? Um, Are there some EQ things? Do you bus all those strings together through one bus and that's what you're controlling in and out of the mix? Um, What what kind of effects are useful for strings? Okay, uh, uh, reverb. And, and subtractive EQ. And I generally don't solo uh, like all the viola passes. I wouldn't do that uh, just because I think it's uh, it's not how it's going to end up. So it's not a, a true test of, well, okay, I can make it sound good with all the viola soloed, but when I, when I lift the solo, it's still something's weird. So I, I'll take like a pass of strings and, and go, okay, which one's giving me a problem and kind of solo around or mute around to see where that problem's occurring and then jump into some subtractive uh, EQ. So a question about your tool set. Yeah. When you're doing this soloing and muting, are you just clicking a mouse button like us or do, have you found that like having some sort of control surface while you work is the way I'm, to go? I'm clicking a mouse. All right. Yeah. Okay, so you've got these things going together. You're using some reverb. How about, are there any other things that we need to be exploring? Like, do we want to be putting a tape plug-in across our entire string section? Is that like the smart thing to do? Do we need to add a little bit of saturation and coolness to our strings to make them remind us of something? 
Um, you know, maybe we're doing like old school soul stuff or something like that. You know, in that situation, absolutely. I would say, you know, do what fits the tune. It, it's again, it can be so radically different, just like the difference of of the Beatles yesterday versus Eleanor Rigby. You would not treat those songs the same, other than okay, it's strings, but they're not they're not the same situation at all to me. Uh, I, I'll uh, I will say. One of the crucial things for getting the string sounds is is finding a way to pan them so that they complement each other within the stereo spectrum, and also know that the the violins and viola can definitely take a lot more reverb than the cello and double bass should. Okay. Uh, the, the lower instruments, if you dump as much reverb on a cello as you've got on a violin, it's going to get muddy and weird and just not clear. Uh, you've got, I feel like you got to have a, a pinch on there to make it match sonically what's going on with the violins and violas, but you don't dump as much on a cello and a double bass nearly as much as you would on violins and violas. Yeah, these are great tips because one thing that I'm reminded of is um, – while an answer to any of these questions could be like, well, just listen to it and see what you think. The right. truth is, during the session and in the moment, we're usually striking that that precarious balance as an engineer of like, I think I know what I'm doing, and I'm also slightly overwhelmed in the moment, and I'm not. I'm at the verge of not trusting my my brain. So it's great to hear these kind of go to tidbits to remember when we get there, and be like, I'm more likely to remember. Oh yeah, that was great advice about less reverb on the on the cello and the bass. So I'll just start with that in mind then to have to be like, okay, let me commit in the next five minutes to deciding whether or not I think there's enough reverb on this cello or bass right now before right. I move forward, you know? Yeah. Um, what about um widening? I know one of the challenges for me in adding strings to a song, you know, maybe a dense mix, is you you feel that strings should be great on this, but sometimes you're like, if I turn the strings up, they're just taking over, taking over the mix, or I can't hear the vocal well enough or something like that. Any thoughts about just finding a home for the strings? You just started to touch on that with panning. Yeah, I, I would, uh, and a lot depends on how many passes of strings you're going to do. I've done as few as three and as many as 30, so it, with a quartet. 30 passes of the quartet. Wow. Yeah. And it can be overwhelming in that things start piling up but you can accommodate some of that with EQ and some of that with the panning just to make it make sense. And you've got to understand that, you know, everybody's not always important. And you've got to figure out when it needs to be important and when it doesn't. Uh, if, if it's a, a small number of passes, like let's say you've got a quartet and you're going to do three passes. Uh, have the third pass have them up play with mutes, which is a, a little thing they clip right. on their strings, which changes the harmonic, it changes the volume, it, it, it makes them softer, but it also changes the harmonic of the string vibrating. And if that third pass is a mute and it's kind of up the middle and the ones without mutes are uh, left and right, man, it gets buttery really fast. <laughs> nice. And it's beautiful. Okay. I mean, it, it really is a smoother, better, you just go, oh, that that doesn't sound like four players. That sounds great. Yeah, that's what we're looking for. Exactly. That's what made us go like, oh, this would be so great with strings on it. You know, But not 30 strings because I can't afford that many people. <laughs> um, and, you know, butter, great reference. I mean, cookies are made from butter. There you go. What's not to love? <laughs> 
All right, so uh, we got our strings up there. How about widening? Um, do we do we reach for widening plugins? You know, stereo widening things. Do we do we avoid that shit? Uh, uh, well, I've never used them on anything, so you're probably asking the wrong guy. Oh, uh, I'm asking the right guy. Well, I, I'm a purist in in that that if it's you know if it's strings, it's not necessarily orchestral, but it's certainly tipping the hat that way, if nothing else. And uh, a widener plugin. If it's for an effect, I get it. I mean, I think about the ELO stuff where he would just put a flanger on it in the turnaround, man, and yeah. just dump it. And it sounds great, but you can't leave that on for the whole song. So if you right. want to do a widen or something to make a moment or an effect for a section, sure, help yourself. But but just to put that on there to go, this will be better, I don't really think it is. I think that's a good answer. I like that. Um, all right, so before we close out here, um, Give us one uh, thought about your mix template. Anything that's um, that you like to start with when you're about to mix music? Maybe that's too vague, of a, too broad of a question, but do you have some automatic go-tos that you're likely to check out as far as how you set up your Pro Tools session, no matter what kind of song you're about to mix? Uh, yeah, uh, I've got a mix template I'm using now, and I'm mixing... Uh, I'm mixing down to stems and then have the stems go to the two mix. So I'm going to have a stereo fader that's that's all drums with effects, a stereo fader that's all keyboards or maybe the main keyboard with effects, and then another stereo of synths, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, background vocals, B3, whatever. And then I, I take the individual's to that stem and those stems go to the two mix. And I, I feel like there's a versatility that I can accomplish by doing that. It sounds like a lot of routing hassles and a lot of trouble. And in some ways it is. But now that I've got this template established, including with all those uh, drums, guitars, keys, synths, acoustic guitars, backgrounds, all of those have their own specific reverb as well. So the stem, what is the stem track? Is that an AUGS track or is that an audio track so it's that you an can print track. it? Well, okay. it can be either. I mean, you can do an audio track and just put it in input, and then when it comes time, you can print it. But having, even if it's the same reverb, if I've got a, a plate verb on the piano and I end up putting it on the acoustic guitar as well, I just do a, I just, you know, option it over to the acoustic guitar so it's essentially the same verb, but it's not it's not going everywhere. It's going just to the acoustic guitar stem and just to the keyboard stem. So, so in other words, can, if you listen to the acoustic guitar stem, you're going to hear the same plate reverb, but it's only going to be the acoustic going through that plate. Exactly. Not, you're not going to hear a ghost of the strings going through it, too. Yeah, or, or piano or whatever. Or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, cool. Um, how about the mix bus? Give us give us some things that might go on your mix bus. Uh, I... I'll do a little bit of knocking the tops off on the mix bus. I try not to get really aggressive in that department. We're talking either. about two mix compression, bus compression. Now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's pretty rare that I will put an EQ there because I feel like if I've just got to brighten the whole mix, then I've missed it somewhere earlier down on the what stream. About, what about an EQ that just cuts like 20 and below or 30 and below? Or I'm taking like care of that either on the stem or at the source. Okay, cool. Yeah. I, and uh, backtracking for a half second here, you'd be surprised at, at how much a high-pass filter helps a double bass. 
Yeah. Because your thinking is, oh, it's it's a bass instrument. I'm going to let it go down to 20 hertz. And it's like, man, you can roll that thing off up to 50 or 60, 80, depending on the key of the song. And it really makes, it makes the bass more clear and more punchy and more aggressive. Yeah, that's side great. Note, Th- those are, anyway. No, that's a great sign. And we've talked about that on the show. Those are tough lessons to learn that like, you know, you start to learn to cut the the lows on your kick and your snare. And you're like, but those are my lows. Why would I cut them? And Right. It, it, it doesn't intuitively make sense at first blush. But once you try it and realize, oh, that that means it clears out space for, and then yeah. you can. And I think the takeaway is learning that what you're not cutting the thing that you want in the end. You're just cutting stuff that you didn't realize was in there that you didn't want. Right. Right. Yeah. Great. Great way of saying it. All right. Well, we we're we're at the end here, but um, let me take you to a final closing question. This one is hypothetical. We're going to take the way back studio machine, and you're okay. going to go back in time, and you're going to find young Doug. Um, arriving in Nashville, maybe uh, same time I, Young Lidge was arriving in Nashville. Uh, you were going to Belmont or whatever or before that, and you just yeah. say, listen, dude, I've, I've come back. Here's, I want to give you this little bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the recording studio yourself one day. What advice would you like to go back and give yourself if you could? Oh, wow. Pay attention. You're going to learn a lot more by listening than talking. And if if you are in a situation where you can, uh, which I was, I, I was an assistant to a, a couple of great engineers, and you don't want to ask them in the heat of battle when, when you're tracking, but, but just kind of make a mental note, or if you have to write it down, do it, and say, hey, I noticed when you recorded this overdub, you set the 1176 this way. Tell me why. And you know, just learn by asking questions and paying attention. You can learn as much what not to do as to do. I've seen engineers try to take over the session from a producer, and nobody's going to win with that. Right. You know, we've all got opinions, and usually I have interns uh, on occasion, and one of my intern rules is show up. Well, I'll give you all of them. Show up, which means if you say you're going to be here at 10 o'clock, you better be here at 10 o'clock. Shut up, which means we don't, this is for you to watch and learn, not for us to learn from you. Right. Because apparently we're the professionals, theoretically. (laughs) And the other is if we want your opinion, we will hold you down and beat it out of you. Otherwise, (laughs) refer to rule number two because you're here to learn. Or we'll hire you for it. Yeah. I think it was that was a tough one to learn as an intern for myself. Yeah. I boy, I love to ask a question in the heat of battle, and I I really had some slaps in the face about it. Um, and then the other reminder is, of course, you have an opinion. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have an opinion. You wouldn't right. have chosen to do this, right? So, so not sharing your opinion has is no reflection on whether or not you have an opinion. You we I, actually I'll say as professionals, we're counting on our interns to not only have an opinion but to have a fucking great opinion and to make the next best record that was ever made when they're ready. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, and to be able to go, you know, after the heat of battle, after you're tearing down or straightening up or running roughs or whatever you're doing and you say to your intern, Hey, what'd you think about that guitar part on the bridge of whatever? And frankly, they should have an opinion because they should have been paying attention enough to 
realize, oh yeah, man, that turned out great, or man, I would I would have taken it this way instead. And that's not saying what there is what's there is wrong. It's saying I would have done it a different way. And that's the beauty of people. We all do it different ways. Yeah. I remember sitting there and being like, you know, like, oh my God, that take was so great. And I said, I said stuff I wasn't supposed to say in the studio. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars. What an awesome hang. Oh, thank you so that much. Was just it was like, great. That, was, that was just like, I can't a believe it's over. Stop. Just waterfall of information. It was really, well, really and stuff. and we didn't cover so much of the of the pre questions that we could have. I so. know I'm such a cheater. Aren't no, I? it's okay. I, I I feel like we filled the time and filled it well. So really it's good. cool stuff about string sections and everything. Thank I you. had no idea we were going to talk so in depth about yeah, that. So I didn't either. But very cool. Um, we'll just have to have you back on the show again later, and we'll dig into more stuff. Part two. Awesome. Works for uh, me. Doug, let the rock stars know how they can find you online. Where should they go learn more about you? They need to come make their next hit record. What do they sure. Uh, Unomastudio.com is the website. Uh, email is doug.sarrett at gmail.com. Uh, if you're double R, double T. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Find it in print Good, somewhere. Right. Yeah. You, and you did. And you said it right, too. Congratulations on that. Uh, if you're brave enough to make a phone call, 615-351-4146. I might even, not answer it, but I'll call you back and we'll talk about if it. If you're even braver, you'll share your phone number on a podcast. That's awesome. Um, cool, dude. Thank you for being here. And um, can't wait to hear what you make next. And look forward to seeing you on the studio. Thanks so much. Had a great time. All right. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rock stars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com review for an easy explanation. And remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever now, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my free course at mixmasterbundle.com and if you want more free content from recording studio rockstars all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com email again that's rsrockstars.com email to enter your name and email and i'll keep you in the loop with articles videos podcast updates and even free gear giveaways for your studio just look for the link in the show notes below thanks so much for listening and thanks for being a rockstar i'm lid shaw and this is recording studio rockstars now go make Make great music. Recording Studio Rockstars would like to give a big thank you to our amazing sponsors who helped make this episode possible. OWC, Whisper Room, Spectra 1964, PreSona Studio One, Jay-Z Microphones, United Plugins, bringing you Hyperspace, Royal Compressor, Fire Cobra, and Front Daw, and Audio Movers, helping stream high-quality audio directly from your studio. You will find links to all these wonderful sponsors in our show notes. These are all things I highly recommend for your studio. They're going to help you make your best record ever. So thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you guys in the next episode.